I'm picturing two guitar players like back to back, hey, like the the just the electric harmony of those axes. Yeah, with the, maybe one of them with the flying V guitar. You know what I mean? Yeah. A good Wednesday morning to you. It's April thirteenth. You're locked into Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you. John Hicks in just a moment. Max Fawcett, lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and then uh, a little later on in the show. One of my all-time favorites, uh, one of Canadian Broadcasting's all-time greats, Linda Steele. You know when you've uh, made it, I think, in media, is when you've not won broadcasting awards, but people are winning broadcasting awards named after you. Right. So the Linda Steele Media Award is one of the awards up for grabs, uh, inspired by Linda Steele, a longtime television news anchor, talk radio host, most recently at CKNW down in uh, beautiful Vancouver, but Linda walked away from it all a while ago, and most folks didn't know why until she released a column just a a couple of days ago in the orca.ca. That's where Linda's writing now as a columnist at the orca.ca. She talks about why she stepped away from broadcasting and what brought her back into the public eye. We're going to have a great conversation about the the cost of living in Vancouver, the toll that the pandemic has taken in uh, Canada's uh, Western uh, Population Center, that is the Lower Mainland, the greater Vancouver area. Plus, Linda's agreed to get a little bit personal today. She's going to talk about life, loving, and living with a parent that's dealing with dementia. And I know that that's something that some of you, uh, perhaps many of you, uh, understand. Uh, something that, that maybe you're living right now. doesn't have to be a parent, but a loved one. Perhaps it's a sibling of yours. Perhaps a grandparent. If you've, if you've seen someone fight dementia you know in the early stages where, where the family starts to want is, is is that maybe dementia she, she was talking she told us that story already she told us that story 10 minutes ago and then everybody kind of starts to get worried because they wonder could this be alzheimer's could it be dementia and then the later stages until you get to that point where the one that's looked into your eyes for 60 years and called you by your name doesn't know who you are anymore when you visit and Linda's family has has been living this and she writes about it and it's going to be a powerful conversation I have no doubt we're going to take a look at other stories that are making news today we're going to take you out to Jasper for my Jasper memories but let's officially get the show started with a mention of our friends at Bitcoin well it's an interesting time right now as markets are down inflation's up cost of living's up and people are looking at what the fluctuations are how is it impacting things around us Well, cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, is not immune from this. But is there a direct line between things like the Nasdaq dipping and Bitcoin dipping? Isn't Bitcoin supposed to be inflation proof? If these are the questions that you or maybe your friends are asking and and you'd like intuitive answers from real life humans, I recommend Benny and his team at Bitcoin. Well, you can find them under the sponsors tab on our website, RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Oh, yeah. And later in the show, we're also going to take you inside Mark Wahlberg's Beverly Park, Los Insane. Angeles mansion. $87.5 million has just hit the market. It's up for sale. It's just, I was looking at it last night and I thought, what do you even do? What do you even do with that much house? Like, well, when you have that much money, you got to, I, I guess, you know, yeah, sure. You could help things like, you know, hunger and child poverty and homelessness and things like that. You or. Could, or. <laughs> 
You could have your very own golf course in your backyard. And no, I don't I don't begrudge people for being successful, but this is a, a pretty wild property. We'll, we'll take people it's into it. When yeah. we do, I have I have some observations about the interior design, but I'm also not an interior designer. So we'll okay. note that. OK, because people would probably say rooms designed by me have a bit of sort of a, a, a college type vibe. I've seen the garage. You've seen the <laughs> you've seen the cabin where we sling beers and throw darts. There is still a place in my life for posters stapled up into the wall. Yeah. Uh, our next guest is the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer. You've read his uh, work in a whole bunch of publications, uh, including his time formerly as the editor of Alberta Oil Magazine. He's been a good friend of this show. Max Fawcett joining us lead off this morning. It's good to see your face, my man. I, I don't suspect you're coming to us from an $87.5 million mansion, but uh, decent job on the background. Last time you were here, you, you faced some criticism for appearing as though you were reporting from a bunker, and you've brightened it up, I see, with framed artwork behind you. Nicely done. Well, it's, it's certainly n nothing that I've done, but uh, <laughs> I got some good interior design consultation help from my partner and... Uh, yeah, this is definitely better than the bunker chic we had. Smart man. Uh, well, Max, you know, I mean, uh, one of the reasons, uh, one of the several reasons why you've uh, featured prominently on this show in past is because we encourage and we actually seek out uh, different opinions, different perspectives on issues making news. And that includes the energy implications of, of Russia's attack on Ukraine um, and some of the takes offered yesterday by the founding CEO of Invest Alberta, David Knightleg, who was on the show. You reached out to us. I appreciate it. We're always looking for different perspectives and different takes. Before we get into yesterday's interview, Max, and the war in Ukraine and Canada's role in the international energy markets, I wanted to pick your brain on U.S. Senator, the Democrat out of West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who's been touring Alberta's oil sands, meeting with Alberta's energy minister uh, and Alberta's premier. And yesterday, uh, who took questions from reporters on why he's here and the conversations that he's having stateside. Let's tee this up. Here's Senator Joe Manchin. My country and my administration is saying, well, uh, let's see if OPEC can produce more oil for us. Uh, maybe let's look again at Venezuela and Iran. And I'm thinking to myself, no one's called the producers in America. And I asked the premier, did anybody call, call Alberta or Saskatchewan? or basically we're producing the, the products. We 60% of our oil comes from Canada. Of your, of your imports, yeah. Yeah, of our imports come from Canada. We produce a tremendous amount of oil. We have more capacity. We can go to 12, 13 million barrels a day. We can help the world. But they were turning to everybody but us. So yeah, that rubbed me wrong. It did, I'll be honest. And I've told them that, they understand. You know, we can agree to disagree as long as we're trying to fix the problem. And this problem has to be fixed by the cleanest energy in the world. And it's right here in Canada and the United States. So that's a Democratic senator out of West Virginia, Joe Manchin. Your general observations, Max, on the meetings and what he had to say afterward? I mean, I thought it was a little weird. We got this notice that there was going to be a, a press availability. I thought they might have something to announce. And it just seems like they had the fact that they're super friends to announce. It's nice that Jason has someone who likes him in his life. Um, you know, certainly the leadership review uh, is, is on the other side of that coin. But, you know, they're kindred spirits. They see things in the same way that, they, that you know, we need to produce more ethical oil. And the, the key to climate change is producing more oil and gas, apparently. And, and you know, they, they, they make the same sort of interesting um, omissions of fact where they talk about Canada and the U.S. being the cleanest sources of oil and gas in the world, which is just demonstrably false. Um, you know, there's a kernel of truth in there. I think if everyone could sort of you know, take a DeLorean back to mid 2000s and get Keystone built. I think that would be helpful for everyone. Um, but I think we also need to understand that Keystone, even if it was in service today, 
would not be changing Russia's behavior, would not really be materially helping Europe uh, with its situation. It would mean more, more money for Alberta and more money for, for Alberta's treasury, which is always a good thing, but it, it is not this sort of magic bullet uh, saving the world sort of situation that it seems to keep getting presented as. And, and I thought it was interesting in Senator Manchin's comments, he talked about how you know, there was the Manhattan Project and, and you know, why aren't we doing that now? And I agree, but the Manhattan Project is not drilling more oil and building more pipelines. It's getting the renewable energy economy in place as quickly as possible. It's building wind turbines, battery storage, uh, resilient grids, all that stuff. That is the Manhattan Project of the 21st century, not Keystone XL. So, Max, people are probably the casual observer will look at this and notice that Senator Manchin is a Democrat, not a Republican. Uh, They'll probably remember that the last Republican president was bullish on Keystone XL and the Democrat that's sitting in the Oval Office right now made killing Keystone XL one of his first orders of business. So you've got a relatively prominent U.S. senator. I mean, I don't mean to throw in the relatively as a caveat, as a slight against West Virginia, but, you know, he's not Ted Cruz. He's not Ted Cruz for the Republicans, but Joe Manchin still, people notice that D and they go, well, does this represent a change in tune from the Democrats? I mean, couldn't this be good news for Canadian energy, generally speaking? What do you read into it? Not even the smallest bit. Right. I mean, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin is the uh, the architect of destroying the Green New Deal in the United States. He is the thorn in the side of every Democrat who actually cares about climate change uh, and and clean energy. So, yeah, he has a D next to him because the Democrats haven't kicked him out of their caucus yet. They need his vote. But, uh, you know, he is a Democrat as much as Christy Clark was a liberal uh, in B.C. It's, it's just a title. So, no, there's nothing that shifted. Um, you know, Biden will be the president until 2024. He has the pen to block anything like Keystone. And look, if you start building Keystone in 2025 after a new president, good luck to you, but the world will have changed four times over by then. So, you know, maybe that maybe, maybe there's a grand bargain where, uh, you know, the mansion could trade Keystone for his vote on all the other Green New Deal stuff, but I don't think that's gonna happen because that doesn't help West Virginia. I asked David Knightleg about this yesterday, and we'll get to some of his clips, the highlights from that interview, and I want to get you to respond. But, you know, one of the things that I wanted to get into yesterday was the argument that he was making about uh, an opportunity for Canadian energy in the context of, of Russia's attack on Ukraine it started to sound like the talking points for the so-called ethical oil argument. And we hear it a lot. And, and some people might, might suggest that it's been debunked or that it's not a thing. But in theory, it makes sense to a lot of people. Wouldn't you rather buy your energy, buy your crude, whatever the case is, from Canada as opposed to the Saudis or as opposed to Venezuela? Wouldn't you rather have more certainty or more stability in your supply? It makes sense to the average person. And, and it's an argument that continues to be made. And I asked Mr. Knightleg this yesterday. I want to ask you the same question. Why do you think that if it's not a thing, it's not? Why doesn't it resonate? I mean, it resonates in Alberta, right? And Saskatchewan and Kelowna and parts of BC. But in the places where you actually need to convince people to support these sorts of projects, you know, Northern Gateway, uh, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest LNG, the Saguenay LNG in Quebec, it doesn't resonate uh, because that is not how people see things. They, they do not think being, and I've been saying this for, God, 10 years now, Ryan, uh, being better than Saudi Arabia does not feel like a win for a lot of Canadians. They think we should do better than that. And it does not actually address their concerns. The concerns of people in BC on the coast, of people in Quebec, 
have nothing to do with, with our human rights policies, which by the way, the oil and gas industry had nothing to do with and gets no credit for. Uh, you know, they were not there on the front lines fighting for same-sex marriage, even though they seem to want to take credit for that now in, in all of this ethical oil stuff. So, you know, people can, I think people have pretty good BS detectors on some of this stuff and they can, they can sense that this is BS. Um, yes, in a, you know, given the choice, would we rather, uh, you know, have the world consume Canadian oil or Russian oil? Canadian, of course. And I've been saying that for years now. Uh, that's why I support most pipeline projects because on balance, I would rather see the world consume our energy than anyone else's. But I'm an easy person to convince. I used to be the editor of Alberta Oil Magazine. I'm not the target market. The target market is people in Vancouver, people in Montreal, people in those places. And this argument does not wash with them. They do not buy it. Uh, I wanted to have an opportunity here to, to chew on and digest what we heard yesterday from uh, David Knightleg. People may also remember him as former principal advisor to Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney. The guy's on the inside. And he's got a long career in, in international banking and finance and uh, a pretty good understanding, I think, of how money moves around the world. We got into the Canadian energy implications of this war in Ukraine. We started talking about emissions and moving energy around the globe. And Max, I appreciate you reaching out to respond. Let's get to uh, one of the moments of that interview yesterday. People can check it out on our YouTube archive, our podcast archive. This is one of the moments I think that raised your eyebrows. Let's roll it. Punchline is it won't matter. The current approach doesn't matter. All emissions are global. All emissions are global. Our 719 megatons is a total rounding error. It's 1.4% of global emissions. It used to be 2% of global emissions. The reason it's 1.4 is because you've had a 28% increase in the total pool of global emissions, but we've held ours flat, right? And that is how, you know, the number one way for us to become the first net zero country uh, in the in the planet is we have enough gas to actually totally replace thermal coal in the Chinese electrical grid. And by doing that, um, not across the entire grid, that grid is massive, but China just built five times the coal-fired capacity of the rest of the world combined last year. They don't are they are not keeping any promises with respect to Paris. But we could offset more than 719 megatons plus the incremental uh, carbon emissions we would have from producing more gas. By shipping that into China, we can we can remove far more global emissions than our entire country utilizes in a year. Not necessarily a new argument, but but it's one that I know didn't appear to fly with you. How come? I've heard this argument for four or five years now. I saw uh, the one of the vice presidents from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers make it fairly recently. So it, you know it hasn't died in the oil in the oil and gas industry. It's this notion that. The way to fight climate change in, a, in the world is by exporting more fossil fuels, which, uh, I mean, come on, it, it, it's, it's the definition of wanting a free lunch, right? The industry doesn't want to have to reduce its emissions. It wants to make more money and produce more product and do the emissions reductions elsewhere. The problem is that's not how it works. So uh, there was a very good piece in policy options back in 2019 by a guy named Jason Dion. I'm just going to read you a, a section from that. And then I'm going to read you something from the World Bank just to, to explain how this all works. So he said, if an importing country's LNG consumption reduces emissions from what they otherwise would have been, for instance, when LNG displaces coal, the GHG reduction benefit goes to that country since the difference in emissions affects its national inventory, not Canada's. Canada's low, export carbon, low carbon exports have a role to play, but they don't get us off the hook. Uh, and here's the World Bank talking about what are called ITMOs, ITMOs 
uh, which are basically agreements under the Paris Accord where you can basically buy reductions or, or agree to make reductions in different parts of the world. While engaging in ITMO trades is voluntary, the Paris Agreement requires that parties apply robust accounting to ensure that the MOs that are traded are not double counted. So yes, we can export all sorts of LNG to China. I've been a supporter of that from day one because I think net net gas is better than coal. Um, but we don't get the credit for their emissions reductions. That's not how it works. So this is a fantasy by the oil and gas industry that they refuse to give up on, despite the fact that the rules under the Paris Agreement are very clear. There's no controversy here. Uh, and it feels a bit like a smokescreen. David, David Knightleg is a very smart guy. He knows that this isn't a realistic option. And so I really do wonder why he keeps bringing it up. It, you know, it seems like these companies that have made these ambitious commitments uh, don't actually want to do the heavy lifting to get there. They keep grabbing on to these sorts of you know, false free lunches that they want instead. And, and it's just not, it's not a grown up conversation. So he, you know, he mentioned that, you know, the adults are back in the room. The adults wouldn't have a conversation like this and they wouldn't bring up an argument like this. It is hard for the average person. I'm not talking about people that have like insider understanding or a bunch of spreadsheets in front of them or people that sit in the boardrooms or understand all of this uh, at, at an intricate or intimate level. But the average person that hears an assertion like more coal plants going online every year in China than are being decommissioned anywhere else in the world, et cetera. And people go, well, listen, if China or India or the United States, for that matter, other big emitters aren't taking this seriously, then why should. And, and I know what you're going to say, Max, because you're going to say, because we got to save the planet. We have a duty and we got to do the right thing. And and, and, and children. And, and no. OK. OK, good. You've got a nope. different. OK. He's shaking his head for those listening on the podcast. But but that's the argument. People will say, well, if nobody else is taking it seriously, why are we killing our industry here at home? Why are we pushing people out of well-paying jobs if nobody else is going to do it, well, what do you say to that objection? Well, that, I mean, that's a straw man that they've, they've built and they like pushing over. China is actually, I mean, they're building uh, coal plants. They're also not building as a lot of coal plants that they had on the books. They're aggressively building out their wind and solar. Uh, and they are, trust me, doing everything they possibly can to wean themselves off of oil and gas imports because those cost them money and foreign currency. So, you know, it, this idea that like, well, you know, the world is not, cooperating with the Paris Accord, why should we even try? First of all, it's a quitter's mentality. Um, and, and second of all, let's get down to brass tacks. It's going to cost us money uh, because whether we like it or not, we live in a, in a country of rules and laws and public markets, and our companies need to attract capital. And if they are seen to be laggards, they are seen to be dragging their heels, they are not going to be able to attract capital at the kind of cost that companies that are doing that will, that are doing what they need to on their emissions reductions. Uh, this, is, this is a capitalism thing. This is not a save the world, feed the children, uh, you know, rainbows and sunshine. This is, this is me you know, talking about commerce and capitalism and markets and all that good stuff that David Knightleg likes to build his reputation on. He knows this. He knows that companies are gonna be disadvantaged if they're high carbon producers in the future. So. Would Alberta and Saskatchewan and the West like to be thriving in 20 or 30 years? Or do we want to be an economic backwater and a pariah? That's sort of the choice. It's not about saving the world. It's about saving ourselves and about building a, a better future, a better economic future for our kids and grandkids. Uh, you know, if we don't prepare and don't do the work now, we're going to have to do it later and it's going to cost a heck of a lot more. 
If you're just joining us, just tuning in, live streaming your audio on the Mixler audio app, we're talking to Max Fawcett, lead columnist at Canada's National Observer, uh, referencing a conversation yesterday I had with David Knight. Like, really, it's best if you listen to the full interviews, both of them. Max is here and David's yesterday. But but I asked him about implications for renewables, right, Max? Because people talk about uh, Russia and, and essentially the, the, the moves, the plays that it's making, this, this energy heist in Ukraine and the implications for Canadian energy. And, and of course, I invoke that metaphor of just widening the highways to ease traffic congestion. People talking about building more pipelines here in North America, looking to Canadian energy more frequently, specifically traditional oil and gas. Of course, a lot of people want, want, want to wonder, well, why aren't we talking more about renewables? Why aren't we talking more about wind and solar? And here's what he had to say. We can't ship wind molecules or sunlight molecules to Bangladesh. Alberta is the headquarters for solar and wind in in Canada. It's not shippable, right? It's not transferable. You can't help the places that are struggling the most by having to use biomass uh, in in the wider population struggling with poverty or having to use coal to fire their electrical grid because it's low cost and accessible. The one low cost accessible thing that we can send around the planet because we're only 35 million people and there's, you know, seven and a half billion people out there, right? The places where the emissions are the greatest and have the greatest challenges need transferable assets. And so that's why gas is so important, because it provides the same amount of energy. Your thoughts, Max? I have so many. Um, I thought it was interesting when I was listening to that question that you asked him about renewables, and he immediately went back to talking about fossil fuels. So uh, he's wrong. By the way, um, the the idea that you know the only thing that that is the, the, let me, the only thing that's exportable is oil and gas, demonstrably false because there's something called green hydrogen, which is hydrogen that's made from wind and solar and other renewable resources, which is absolutely shippable. That is what Europe is uh, preparing to bring on in massive quantities uh, to sort of wean themselves off of Russian gas. So yeah, we can do that in Quebec. We can do that in BC. We could theoretically do it here in Alberta. Uh, the other point is that. It's not just about us. Like the, the global climate conversation is not about how Alberta makes the most money or how Alberta maximizes its piece of the action. But don't and I that has to be part of it, Max, doesn't it? I mean, realistically, we want that to be part right. of the conversation. It's not, I promise you, it's not part of Bangladesh's conversation. It's not part of China's conversation. Sure. It's not part of any other part of the world. They don't care about our market share. They care about driving down their cost of energy. But if we, I'm, gonna, all I'm saying is that if there's a position that, for example, a premier or a jobs minister or an energy minister can take to say, as we observe this global energy transition and, and we recognize not just where markets are going, but the importance of it in the context of climate and everything else, wouldn't it be great if we could take this, this significant portion of our population, skilled workers, uh, apprentices, journeymen, people who've earned their ticket and worked hard and put them to work in the new energy context it's it's better to have a bigger piece than a smaller piece of the pie is all i'm saying it is but not if if the only option is exporting natural gas Uh, it's just a false choice right the idea that that developing nations need to sort of go through this energy stations of the cross where they you know they have to use fossil fuels before they use renewables that's not how it works they didn't do that with phones they they skipped straight from landlines to cell phones and these countries are going to skip straight from whatever they're using right now to renewables as quickly as they possibly can. Now, can we be a part of that? Sure, we can be a small part of that, but not as big a part as if we were exporting them LNG, and they know that. Uh, The other thing that David said there, which I thought was interesting, they always refer to natural gas as low cost. Have you looked at the price of natural gas lately, Ryan? Have you uh... looked at the price? Yeah, 
it's not low cost. This is a fiction. Oil is over $100 a barrel. LNG prices are as high as I think they've been uh, in, in almost a decade. The idea that, that it is like this low cost source of energy, no, it's not. Yeah, you, uh, are, are you also encouraged by the high price of natural gas? Right. Like like in a, in a, in a weird way, because people are going to listen and say, what the hell is he talking about? My utility bills are double what they usually are. I mean, people are reporting that, you know, eight, nine hundred dollars a month on utilities now for the average person's home kind of is starting to feel normal. And for a lot of people, that's a huge stretch. I acknowledge that. But when you look at the bottom line, provincial coffers, things like that, uh, a lot of people would say the higher prices, including oil as well. Pretty good for Alberta. You got to kind of find a bit of a balanced perspective, don't you? Yeah, it's good for Alberta. You know, I, I gave a, a talk recently where I compared it to to us winning the lottery as a mm-hmm. province. This yeah. is on a, this is an unexpected lottery win. What do we do with the proceeds, right? Do we do do we do we spend them on doubling down on the way things used to be, or do we use them to invest in education, invest in the green economy, renewables, things like that, skills training, and build a platform for this province's young people so they have as good of a future as we had a past. That's what I'd like to see. I have not seen it yet from this government. And you know, as to uh, uh, you know, utility prices, wouldn't it be nice if they used all the money that's flowing into their coffers to put the cap back that they took off of utility prices? Uh, I appreciated that uh, Mr. Nightleg yesterday brought up EVs because anytime we talk about EVs, we know it's going to spur a whole bunch of spinoff conversations, which is good. I mean, they are upon us. They're becoming more and more normal. If you see a Tesla, it doesn't kind of stop you in your tracks anymore. It feels like every 10th car is one. More and more people integrating their own charging stations into their homes. And I had a great and lively conversation with a buddy when I was on the West Coast uh, just this past fall. He's got a beautiful Tesla and, and he was grinding our gears talking about how, uh, you know, in, in Vancouver, he says your Tesla can be powered by hydro, but in Alberta, it's powered by coal. And he was being facetious, but but it teed up an interesting uh, debate. And, and, and David touched on it yesterday. I think it's important for people to know that, look, electric vehicles, most of them, most places in the world run on coal. Most Teslas run on coal all over the world. In China, they all run on coal, right, uh, through the grid. So unless you change the fundamentals of the major sources of the major demand of energy that creates the electricity that we're demanding more and more from every you know household then you haven't actually fundamentally changed the emissions emissions equation max i mean yet another sort of old familiar talking point that's that i've probably spent you know years knocking down uh no that's not true china's you know, it's not like when you plug in an electric vehicle in China, it must be powered by coal. They have this thing called the Three Gorges Dam. They're pretty big on hydro in China, too. So there's definitely a lot of coal on their grid, but it's not all coal. And no, most EVs in the world are not powered by coal. There's, you know, lots of EVs in California, if memory serves, and pretty sure California's grid is not heavily reliant on coal. So, uh, you know, I just wish people didn't make these sorts of arguments to advance their point. They don't have to make things up. They could tell the truth. Um you know, uh, yes, we do need to clean up our grids. And, and your friend in Vancouver is wrong. You know, the, the percentage of coal on Alberta's grid is going way, way, way down. Thank you, NDP. Uh, and so by, you know, your chances are your EV charging in Alberta is probably charged by natural gas or wind and solar. Um, but yeah, we need to knock the, the coal off the grid and replace it with clean energy. That's not an argument against EVs. That's an argument against decarbonizing faster. 
See, I should have been texting you when I was having this debate in the fall. It was maybe caught on my heels a little bit. But uh, I love conversations like this, Max, because it, it, it sort of allows us to see this from a couple of different points. And now audience members that have checked out the interview yesterday and this one with you today can wrestle with it and dig deeper and read more and, and seek better understanding and more fulsome understanding. And that's what we endeavor to do. Uh, let me ask you in closing to bring the conversation full circle. Senator Manchin says that uh, he's invited Premier Kenny down to Washington, D.C. He wants him to testify in front of the uh, Senate Committee on Energy, uh, the Senate Committee, U.S. Senate Committee on Energy. Uh, they're talking about a North American Energy Alliance, which is something that sounds very good and very powerful. All the flags intertwined yesterday and everybody's going, what sort of opportunity might this be? What do you think comes of all this? Uh, I tweeted a gif of Stephen Colbert saying this is going to be a disaster because this is going to be a disaster. Um, you know, there's this weird comment that Kenny made in the press conference that he needed to educate American legislators because they didn't know about oil and gas in Canada. The, the whole reason why Keystone XL got defeated was because Ralph Klein decided to put a giant oil sands uh, truck in the National Mall in Washington and Americans started to learn about what we were doing up here and how high our emissions were. They know. They are not ignorant to what is happening. And I worry that because he wants to show off to his members, he wants to survive the leadership vote, he wants to show he's important, he's going to go down to Washington and he's going to get filled with bullet holes by Democratic uh, Congress people. Uh, we're going to ask tough questions about the emissions intensity of our oil and gas. We're going to ask tough questions about tailings ponds. We're going to ask tough questions about Indigenous reconciliation. And we may not, he may not have the answers for that. We may get a lot of coverage in the United States and it may be really bad coverage. So if he has this desire to you know, revive KXL or get a new pipeline down there, I don't think he's the guy that should be down there going down there and talking about it. Who is the person that should be down there advocating for Alberta oil and Canadian energy? Uh, Ryan Reynolds. There's your there's your answer. You get Ryan down there. He can sell. He could sell anything. And I think he could he could get them to build five new pipelines in one year. Uh, so, you know, uh, but it can't be someone like Kenny. Kenny is profoundly unlikable and he's profoundly unlikable to the exact people that he needs to like him on this issue. Uh, you know, he, he's just going down there and setting himself up as a giant target for these other Democrats and the other Democrats are going to take a swing at him. That's Max Fawcett. You can read his work. He's a lead columnist at Canada's National Observer. Always appreciate your takes, Max. Thanks for making time for us. Anytime, Ryan. Thank you. All right. Good stuff. Ryan Reynolds, I was, I was going to say to Max, I was hoping for a serious answer. You'd probably say to me, "Well, th that is my serious answer. Right. You should send it out like Ryan Reynolds." I wonder if you know Ryan Reynolds. He doesn't strike me as somebody that would want to. Why, why would you want to get all, your hands all dirty in politics? I'm going to tell you honestly, Ryan Reynolds could sell me anything. Yes, <laughs> what is it? He's aviation gin, right? Isn't he that is, him? He That's is his aviation thing. Gin, yeah. See, advertising works. Speaking of advertising, speaking of renewables. Speaking of EVs and Teslas and charging stations in your home or at your office or green energy goals, you know where I'm going with this. Kubi Energy has been doing this across Western Canada uh, more than a decade now. I love the company's history. The founder, Jake Kubiski, the CEO, formerly an oil and gas electrician, but he saw where the trends were going. Check out their website, kubienergy.ca. You can learn more under the blog section. This is the one I want to show you right here. The Edmonton Solar Power Rebate, the Clean Energy Improvement Program, the Canada Greener Homes Grant. I mean, all of these resources to help you go green. 
at a cost that might be quite a bit less than what you're anticipating. Free quotes right now at kubienergy.ca. Now, when you get your Kubi Energy power system installed, maybe including your Tesla charging station in your garage, I don't know what your EV scenario is, but more and more people are doing that. Give a shout to Park Power. Swing on by their website. That's the first step I would recommend at parkpower.ca. Why? Because they have, in partnership with Kubi, a solar buyback program, which could drop your bill down if and when your system is producing more than the capacity you require. Plus, they've got their electricity, natural gas, and internet rates. You can compare them on the website, and when you bundle them all together, you're going to save money on administrative costs. Those are oftentimes some of the highest costs mixed into your bill. The promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill through parkpower.ca. Our friends at Athabasca University, well, you know by now it's Canada's online university. They want to remind you the number one reason why most students, and there are thousands of them across the country, are choosing Athabasca U is because of the flexibility that the programs offer. I've told you about the real talker by the name of Jennifer uh, that reached out a while ago to let us know that she's completing her psychology degree at Athabasca U. She reached out again, let me know. She said, I've just finished up my finals. Of course, it's not really finals season at Athabasca U because everyone's on their own pace. So your finals are when you want them to be. She's decided to take a six-month break from her study. Says she wants to come back fresh and motivated. She's not going to fall behind in her program because she's managing it at the pace that she can manage. You can learn more about enrollment and the research being done there at AU at AthabascaU.ca. And... We're going to be talking to Linda Steele in a little bit about parents aging, including loved ones living with Alzheimer's. If that's something that your family's navigating right now, but it's important to you that your loved one age in place at home in familiar surroundings, Infinity Healthcare is helping families find that perfect fit caregivers that have been custom selected to fit specific situations through their personality matching system. You know that your loved one's getting their prescriptions, they're getting their meals, they're getting the fellowship that they need. Talking to another human being when they get visited, oftentimes a couple of times a day from their caregiver through Infinity Healthcare. You can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website. Linda Steele's coming up in just a little bit. Uh, Former television news anchor, former uh, AM radio talk show host, and now a columnist at theorca.ca. Very much looking forward to that. And I know that that Linda has had a big impact on many of you when we announced yesterday from our official Twitter account at Real Talk RJ that she was going to join us. Automatically started hearing from people, including a bunch of uh, messages on questions you'd like us to ask her, etc. Linda Steele has has been bringing people the news and earning folks trust uh, for decades as a long time six o'clock news anchor on the number one broadcast in our home city of Edmonton and most recently as a revered and beloved talk show host on CKNW in Vancouver she's now writing online she's got a new column at the orca.ca what a pleasure to welcome to the program Linda Steele making her real talk debut it's oh and look at you wearing your, for everybody on the podcast wearing your Oilers drop there you go right uh you know what let me just say this first I mean I hate to sort of start by blowing some smoke your way but 
You know, I've been following what's been going on with you and right from when you parted ways with Chorus and then you, we waited to see what you were going to do next. And it turned out to be this podcast. And I thought, okay, we'll see how that goes because there's thousands of podcasts out there and they're hard to monetize as I'm learning, but you've really done an amazing job and you found your people and I just salute you. I mean, you're an inspiration. So good for you. Well, that means the world to me and and I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised to see you repping Oilers colors right now, but 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 I have to I I I don't know. I mean, I, I respect it a heck of a lot because I know that you <laughs> you've got this this legion of fans as well on the West Coast, and and I don't know if they're going to be okay with this. I guess maybe if the Canucks were were more fact more of a factor into the playoff race, maybe it might be a bit more divisive. Well, they've won four games in a row for one thing. So, you know, know, that's okay. Uh, Here's the thing. I tried to fall in love with the Canucks. I really did. And they would get going somewhere and then they would have a crappy season. And I just, you know, they're my second team. But during the pandemic, oh, it was so much fun to watch the Oilers. Mm -hmm. And this T-shirt that I'm wearing, I actually bought during the playoffs last year because I was super psyched. And uh, the Oilers got bounced before I had a chance to wear it. It didn't even arrive in time. So screw it. I'm wearing it now. I'm getting my money's worth. And I'm having so much fun watching this team. It is my bucket list to go to Rogers Arena. Mm. And Gord Steinke says he's going to see if he can get us some playoff tickets. And he's a popular guy in Edmonton, but he's not the Pope. So I don't know if he's going to pull it off. He's a a bit of a big deal for folks that don't know know (laughs) Gord Steinke and you. Uh, co-anchored Global Edmonton's News at Six for, for what, 25 years or something like that? And, well, and not quite that long, but it was it a long time. We were the longest running yeah. anchor team in Edmonton history, I think. Yeah, which was great. And, and obviously uh, uh, claimed your fair share of the ratings through those years in uh, in what was always a, a really popular broadcast. You made the move, though, and, and you'll have to remind me, I, I think it maybe had something to do with your husband and his career as well, but the both of you uh, had great opportunities to move west, but you transitioned from... Like if I can say, and obviously I've seen you host a ton of events and I'm not suggesting that you need a teleprompter. You don't. I mean, you're a master of your craft, (laughs) but you move from, can I say the safety of a teleprompter and a TV studio behind a live mic and you took on talk radio. What was that transition like for you? Oh my God. I mean, it was the one thing I hadn't done. I'd done TV for 25 years, loved it. I'd worked for the Edmonton Journal, writing a biweekly column, loved that. Radio was like the last frontier of media, had not done that before. And I thought this would be a challenge, get the juices going again, a big learning curve. But the mistake I made was that I'd only been in Vancouver for about five years. And I just didn't have the historical knowledge that, you know, Rolodex in your head where you can just pull up facts at a moment's notice and all the political background going back decades. If I had done talk radio in Edmonton, it would have been so much easier. In Vancouver, everything was a deep dive. Which mayor is this? There's 23 different municipal mayors and what's going on there. So it was like a major research session before every single segment. So it took me a couple of years to sort of feel like I had my feet on the ground, but wow, what a challenge. Radio is so intimate. 
Did you find that the difference? I mean, you're a TV guy who went to radio too. Yeah. What are the differences you found? Well, I, uh, <laughs> my very first interview, it was, it was like a really, uh, a, a, a sad morning. My very first morning, my very first show I ever did, the Charlie Hebdo offices had just been oh. shot up in Paris. Do you remember this? The, yeah. You yeah. Know, one of their editorial cartoonists had, had, had drawn a cartoon depicting the prophet Muhammad and, and it had drawn the ire of, of, of an extremist who, who entered that editorial space and, uh, uh, and obviously an act of uh, terror uh, in in uh, Paris. And so so my very first show, I stepped behind. And I remember, too, Linda, when I was hosting breakfast television, my interviews would be like three and a half minutes, four minutes, yeah. you know. Boom. And, um, you know, we're going to remember Gilbert Gottfried a little bit later in the show, the comedian that just passed away yesterday. I remember trying to interview yeah, Gilbert sad. Gottfried in four minutes and trying to get oh, the most out of luck. it. And then yeah. you realize in talk, the interviews are like 25 minutes or 40 minutes. And part of me was really excited. And then part of it I found to be daunting. Point yeah. is... I start with some opening commentary on, on what's happening in Paris and it's an active situation. And then we go to this terrorism expert by the name of Stephanie Carvin and I bring her in and my first couple of questions in, which I thought were uh, relatively uh, noncommittal on any sort of a partisan standpoint or any sort of a perspective, yeah. general questions. And I noticed the text line we had for viewer feedback start lighting me up like this audience was just figuring me out. This was just the first 10 minutes and people are going, oh, he's a lefty. He's a liberal. And I'm sitting there going, I'm just asking somebody about an active terror. What on earth? Yeah. And that was kind of my first. And then you settle in and you figure it out and you, you grow a thicker skin. You show up to work with some Kevlar on and I've kept it on ever yeah. since. But that was probably the biggest change of people trying to pin you down all the time on the spectrum, trying to understand you. But that's also the sign of an engaged audience. You know what I found is that my yardsticks really moved on a bunch of things. Mm. Because when I first moved to Vancouver, there were things that were new to me, like harm reduction sites. You know, nobody was doing that in North America. And I wasn't sure if that made sense. Really? We got a place where a whole bunch of people are going to go shoot up heroin. And so at first it was like, oh. but over the years, I had the opportunity and the privilege to have people who I didn't necessarily agree with and people who knew way more than I knew about subjects come on a show and have a deep dive conversation. And over the years, I really found that I started to move my position on things. And I think that, you know, people would say, well, you said this, you know, three years ago. And I was like, yeah, and I've really learned a lot since then. So for me, it was about having conversations with people. You didn't always have to agree with them. I wasn't necessarily the kind of host that jumped down your throat and was all, you know, uh, I wasn't like that. I was trying to be respectful and listen. If you said something really outrageous, inaccurate, or just asinine, I would call you on it. But I, I loved the fact that I could sit at the table with some of the brightest minds, or just an average person who had an extraordinary story to tell, and they're just trusting you. And, and you get the opportunity to be with them and look them in the eye and, and really have a conversation that mattered. That was cool. Hmm. I, I uh, We've had uh, robust conversations on this show about you know sort of the polarized nature it seems right now of society and maybe it's oh, not more God. polarized now than ever maybe maybe just more people have a voice or maybe more people have a platform I don't know but it seems super heated I think some of it I'm not a psychologist nor a sociologist but I think some of it maybe has to do with COVID I think a lot of us uh, oh, are, yeah. are carrying a little bit more angst than we're used to we're a little bit more tightly wound maybe we haven't been around people as much I don't know uh, but I think that it's it's become more important now than ever to be able to have these platforms or these forums where people can debate and people can argue in, in, in a controlled scenario. And I think it's interesting to hear you talk about changing your mind on things 
And I think that, you know, we, I, I did never endeavor to host a show that, you know, we're going to get you to change your mind because it presupposes that the audience is wrong or that the position the host has or the guest has is right. And I don't really like that. Uh, people can have conviction, but I like to have that open forum. But it strikes me that there's less and less of a public appetite. Like people are more moving into camps. Did you pick up yeah. on that? People are really entrenched right now. And I find that disheartening because, you know, people go down their rabbit holes with their preferred media sites. And, you know, if you believe that COVID makes a grow a third eyeball and they're inserting chips in your arm and what have you with vaccines, you can find something that will substantiate that online. So people get to the point where they stop listening and they stop learning. And that's when we've hit the danger zone. And sure, you know, there were lots of people who didn't agree with me or agreed with me on Wednesday and not on Friday. But if you were listening and if you came in open-minded and left with a little bit more knowledge than you had when you came in, then that was a victory. Right now, people are not listening. They're angry and they're tired. I personally blame the Trump era for a lot of that because, you know, he was just so atypical and so boorish and so brash and, you know, astonishingly half of America loved him. But he also sort of opened up a Pandora's box and encouraged people if they were racist or a misogynist or, you know, intolerant in any way, you know, here's the most powerful guy in the world practically. And he's saying these things. So yeah, he's my hero. And I think it just sort of started to stir the pot. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think a lot of people who have views that maybe mainstream Canadians would say are offensive or not my point of view, they didn't feel like they had a voice for a long time. So they were lying in the weeds, stewing and feeling angry angry and thinking nobody represents me and nobody's listening to me. So we really tried to listen. And I really tried to understand where a Trump supporter was coming from, because that was not where I was. I didn't agree with them a lot of the time, but I tried to listen and I wanted them to understand why I found him distasteful, you know, the thousands of documented lies and what have you. But the, when we stop listening to each other and stop looking for multiple sources of information that could maybe, you know, dispute some fact you think you've read somewhere else, then we're in trouble. And I feel like people are angry right now and the pandemic just... I don't know about you, but I am done. I am so done with this damn pandemic. Oh, man. So I get it, right? People are just tired and they're frustrated and they've been through a hell of a lot and they just want things to calm down. Yeah, we're going to be talking to uh, doctors Darren Markland and Lenora Saxinger tomorrow about the pandemic and this sixth wave. Can you believe we're talking? Oh, I, 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 I don't know how people would have wrapped their minds around it. I mean, I was obviously completely ignorant in what was that like the end of February, beginning of March of 2020. And I remember thinking I was talking to my wife, Carrie, and sort of thinking this this might be um, kind of a neat few weeks where we can all oh, just lock right? down and clear out our freezer and, and eat all these pierogies <laughs> that are stuck in the bottom of the freezer. That we're, and we'll just and, and then at that point, I don't know how we would have done as a society. I don't know how we would have done personally if I would have been able to fast forward to two years later, uh, two years plus, And hear somebody talking about the advent of the sixth wave oh, how how is your like how are you approaching it today i asked charles adler this yesterday how, how are you now sort of two years in managing it when you say you're so sick of it i imagine that doesn't mean you're just giving up on all the precautions but how are you no. managing this 
Well, you know, I largely wear a mask. If I'm going into a busy place and I'm going grocery shopping or if I'm going into a shop that's closed quarters, I'm wearing a mask and I'm doing it partially for myself, but I'm also doing it to show respect for other people who don't have a choice. They're trapped in there behind the till, you know, face to face with a bunch of strangers. I go see my dad in long-term care a couple of times a week. I have to be rapid tested every time I go. I have a couple of boxes of rapid tests here at home, finally, because BC took forever to let us get access to them. So I'm trying, still washing the hands. I'm trying to be mindful. Still haven't traveled anywhere internationally, even though I'm dying to go somewhere. But it just seems like such a freaking hassle right now mm. that I just can't really be bothered. So I... I saw in BC a report the other day that said 50% of British Columbians have had COVID in the last couple of years. And I'm like knocking on a piece of wood right here because I have not, uh, my husband has not, my dad has not, but mm. I sure know a zillion people who haven't. I don't want to risk being one of those people that gets the long COVID because we don't even know what that means. It's going to be a nightmare going down the road. Well, and we've we've interviewed some folks that are that are you know living with or suffering from I don't know what vernacular they uh, they prefer, but Suffer long COVID, good, suffering yeah. from probably. And you'll hear different symptoms and, and people's different experiences. But again, you're 100 percent right. It's still early. Like we only have a sort of a general idea of, of what it might look like for people. But the numbers are staggering. I think they say that approximately and I might be wrong, but uh, experts are suggesting that approximately 10 percent of people that contracted COVID-19 will live with some symptoms of long COVID, which if you look at the numbers around the world, it's obviously going to be hundreds oh. of thousands or millions of people. Right. Well, so. plus, I mean, they're starting to connect it to things like diabetes. They're seeing a, a, a high rate of people who had COVID who are all of a sudden de developing diabetes. They're starting to see a potential connection to dementia and Parkinson's. There's all kinds of issues with brain fog. There's people who can't go back to work anymore. We don't really know what this means. So if you're one of those people who says, you know, it's just a cold and I feel crappy for a couple of days and who cares? I'm going to live my life. We have to get used to living with COVID. You have to remember that you might be one of those people who's not so lucky and you might a, end up in the hospital and God forbid die, but, or you might be suffering for years down the road. So it, it isn't something that we can just fluff off and say, bye, you know, it's been two years, move on. I want to I want to read a couple of uh, comments here from audience members that are joining us live today. They're uh, oh. checking us out live streaming on YouTube. We're talking to uh, legendary broadcaster, columnist, talk host, Linda Steele, who's uh, just launched a new column at the orca.ca. And we're going to talk about that, of course. Uh, this from Alicia says her voice is like a hug from a friend. Aww, so familiar. So How does nice. that I get chills? You She's not even talking about me. <laughs> Let me tell you this story. When I first moved to Vancouver in 2011, I was really excited, but I kind of felt like this will show my age, like Mary Tyler Moore when she's thrown her hat in the scene, like oh, I've made it, you know. And uh, but then I got to a point where I felt like a fish out of water. I just, you know, I didn't really, it wasn't my city. And I was standing in a Starbucks and this young woman walked in and she looked at me and she said, Linda Steele, she said, can I hug you? Yeah. And I was like, sure. And she said, I just moved here. She said, I'm so lonely. And she said, I see your face and you just brought home back to me. And you just, I just feel so good. And I was like, well, I feel like that too. I also feel like an outsider. So man, I get it, but wow. I love Edmonton. I really do. I will defend it till the end of the earth. People say, oh, you know, try to do the Edmonton or whatever that kind of BS is. And I say, no way. I mean, Edmonton was a great city. City is a great city, super livable. 
Yeah, I don't regret one minute of my time. There. Well, I want to I want to ask you, and this is like kind of an awkward it's it's quite frankly, it's a rude question, oh, um, bring it e- on. except for except for you're a broadcaster and a talk host. So so you won't mind it. But, okay. it, but if you ask the average person that's moving from Edmonton or Saskatoon or Winnipeg or even Calgary to Edmonton, uh, the first question is, how are you going to do it? Because people are looking at these knockdown bungalows with boarded up windows. Pierre Poliev just released a video standing in front of one of them, four yeah. and a half million dollars. My brother, yeah. his wife and their kids, my sister, her partner and their beautiful little boy all live out there. They tell me what they're paying in rent. And the only reason that it's even close to reasonable is because there's pretty strict rent controls in place. But homeownership, Linda, is virtually a pipe dream. For anybody under the age of 50 that wants to live in Vancouver. And then the cost of living across the country is skyrocketing right now. Inflation over 5%. Politicians are latching on to it. Pierre Polyev is going to become the leader of the conservatives and maybe the prime minister on this message. How did you, here's where it gets a little bit rude. How did you and your husband, how did you guys make it work coming from a relatively affordable city to, I mean, the one of the most beautiful ones in the world, but how do you pay for it? Well, you know, it's interesting because we were trying to sell our house in Edmonton. We were moving kind of in the dead of winter, not a great time to sell. We were watching prices of condos in Vancouver and they were going up about $10,000 a month. And we thought, oh my God, if we don't buy something soon, we're going to be priced out. Two people making good incomes, no children, the typical dinks, you know, double income, no kids. And uh, we went on a little sort of look-see weekend in Vancouver, and we stopped in and looked at an open house just to kind of suss out an area that we think we might want to live in. It was an older house sectioned off into three separate, you know, living areas or, or, you know, stratified kind of units. And it was nice. And we looked around, we said, oh, you know, this is this is pretty nice. How much is it? And they, she said, and this was 11 years ago, 1.1 million. And we're like, oh my God, it was about 1200 square feet. And she saw the look on her face and she said, well, is that a problem? And we said, well, you know, we were, we were thinking maybe spending 800,000. And she actually, the look on her face was like, as though she just smelled something bad. And yeah. she said, oh, well, I don't sell anything for under a million. Yeah. And we thought, oh, la-di-da. And then we found out that that was what was going on. So it was crazy. We bought a little condo in the sky and uh, it was nice enough, but it was about not even 1,200 square feet. We'd have friends from Edmonton come and visit us and they would say, so you paid how much for Mm -hmm. this? And then you throw on the property transfer tax, which is just a giant cash grab by the BC government and has been for 35 years. That'll tack on another $25,000 to the price. You've got sales tax. We've got BC as a carbon tax. It's way ahead of where you guys are. Gas prices were $2.14 a liter. $2.14. You drive by and just go like, it's crazy town, right? Now it's all of an affordable $1.94 a liter. And I mean, it just goes on and on. I went and picked up a couple of hamburgers at the Cactus Club takeout the other day for me and my husband, a couple of burgers and some fries and a little container of edamame beans. You know how much it was? Mm. $63. Lots. And daycare, inaccessible, thousands of dollars a month. They're talking about putting road tolls. Anybody who's driving into Vancouver has to pay a toll. They wanted to make everybody pay to park on the street in front of their house. And if you had like a gas guzzler or if you were going to buy a 
you know, Ford F-150 or something, what you could tack on another thousand dollars for that. It just, I mean, it goes on and on and on. It just, it, they say that BC stands for bring cash and it's true. It's really, it's very challenging. It's beautiful. A lot of things to love about Vancouver, but Man, it is like a commitment, a financial commitment you'll, uh, to live here. You'll you'll recognize Johnny Infamous, uh, John Hicks, our new technical producer, who's just moved here from Kelowna. And you're as soon as oh, Linda yeah. as soon as is Linda said BC is bring cash. I saw you just <sighs> yeah. We literally the first night we drove a trailer from Alberta to uh, Kelowna. We're going in to save on foods, and uh, an, an older couple sees us in this uh trailer and says oh welcome to the province and uh hope you brought your money and we said what and that's exactly what uh the elderly lady said bc stands for bring cash what was one of the uh what was one of the so linda references two dollar twenty liters i mean if you think of that in canadian dollars 880 a gallon that's absolutely wild what what was one of the ones areas that you really really you had to pony up yeah, gas, uh, living expenses, everything, and especially when you're in somewhere like Kelowna as well. Yeah. Everything is just a little more and a little more inaccessible. So, yeah. So, Linda, there's and then I mean, you reference, you know, you talk about this sort of privileged position that you're in. You and your, your hubby both have, you know, good. You're, you're sort of in that. Can I say the earning stage of your career? You, sure. pay, you know, you're, yeah. you've got these great jobs. I think of people that are just starting out student debt. Maybe they've maybe, you know, they're, they're taking like a sort of a prove it position a contract their first contract in industry maybe they have young kids and and i just i mean even you know you look at and i know we're getting regionally specific here but i mean i went to university you know in langley i mean my, my girlfriend lived in chilliwack at the time like it's like a million bucks to live in chilliwack now within with an hour and a half commute yeah and the price of housing has gone up something like 40 percent there in the last yeah. year because people have to keep moving further and further and further out and then some of those areas are not accessible by transit so now you've got like an hour and a half commute this was great when i was doing the afternoon drive on cknw because there were people trapped in their cars doing a two-hour drive home at the end of the day and they were with you because they had nothing else to do and they were listening and calling in but i had a young guy who was working for me as a technical producer and he was making i believe it was just over 15 dollars an hour Jeez. and so i mean he, the kid was dying right so he would come when it was near payday and he had run out of cash he would come in with and he was a big kid he was like six foot three he would come in with a bag of protein powder and i would say what is that he's like i can't afford to buy groceries and so that was all he was going to have to eat. He came in one time wearing these ridiculous jeans that were like, looked like they were 25 years old. And I said like, oh, new pants. He said, oh, I had one pair of like Wranglers and I ripped the pocket and I can't afford to buy another pair of jeans. So I left work and I went over to the bay and I got him a gift card. I mean, it is, it is just crazy. When you talk about, you know, the, the living wage in BC, I think they say it's, it, it's up and over 20 bucks and, and it, you know, minimum wage is not there. So it's, it's a sacrifice for a lot of young people. And in fact, that young technical producer, he quit and he moved to Edmonton yeah. and he just bought a house. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about Johnny, by the way, just so yeah. everybody knows. It's almost the same story though. <laughs> just, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I, I, I don't mean to necessarily make it about politics, but there are politics at play here. Um, can you call up the shot from Spruce Meadows last night? Linda, did you see this? Pierre Poliev? Like, obviously, this is conservative heartland like Spruce Meadows in, in South Calgary. This is, you know, owned by the Southerns. I, I mean, this is about as conservative country as it gets. But still, check this out. Five thousand plus 
showing up uh, for a rally for Pierre Polyev, who's, of course, seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And one of his major talking points, I rolled my eyes last night when he said he defund the CBC. That's kind of the one of the one of the sort of the, ah, the chunks of, of, of red meat that you toss out. Um, but. Uh, it goes to show that his message is resonating with a lot of people. I saw a response from uh, an organizer, uh, a political organizer out of Edmonton. She would acknowledge that she leans left. And uh, I saw her tweet yesterday. I thought it was bang on. She said the left better figure out how to address people's specific concerns and fast. What do you make of that? You know what, though? I mean, Polyev is not stupid. That resonates with, you know, so many Canadians and it doesn't matter which coast you're living on. Housing is ridiculously unaffordable and governments of all stripes have let it go. And it's to the point where people are so heavily indebted that we're screwed. The Bank of Canada just jumped rates by a half a basis point today. Or yeah. a, uh, So it's going to put, if, as they continue to hike and hike and hike, it's going to put millions of people underwater probably. And maybe we shouldn't have got that indebted, but if you actually wanted to live in a house that was your own, you were gonna have to pay way more than that house was worth. So Polyev is tapping into something that is real and people are mad and they've been asking for a solution for a long time and government hasn't really come up with anything more than a little piecemeal, oh, look, we're gonna ban foreign buyers for two years. Well, that's gonna do diddly squat. Uh, not really. It's not going to make housing more affordable. It is addressing a problem and maybe they should do it and see what happens. But the thing that Polyev is not saying is how is he going to make housing more affordable? Because we know that the large number of people who are consistent voters are boomers and they'd be pissed off if the government does anything to crash the value of their home. This is what people are counting on retiring on. So you have two like different demographics of people who wanna maintain the value of their home and other people who are hoping the bubble's gonna burst and nobody's really coming up with solutions. And I haven't heard any from Polyev yet, but he has certainly got the videos and tapping into a populist sentiment, sentiment. Now we'll see if he can deliver because, you know, the liberals haven't done anything. They look like they're trying to do something, but I don't know that it's going to make any difference. Uh, we're talking to Linda Steele, uh, just launched a new column just a couple of days ago at the Orca.ca. Linda, hang tight. I want to talk to you about that. Plus, I mean, you've been an open book talking about at least in this column, maybe that was the first big step for you, life with aging parents and some of the struggles that your family's been enduring. Linda Steele, more with her in just a moment. I want to read some of your comments through this one in front of me from Aaron here aimed at Linda. And I, I want to see Linda's face when we read it. So that'll, that'll be a good one. Oh. Of course, this show happens. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, I mean, groceries and we're talking about vehicles and all of these operating costs that families have. When we find a deal out there for you, when we find an opportunity for you to keep a little money in your pocket, we're going to tell you about it. It's why I'm always reminding you to circle the first of the month on your calendar. If you're buying groceries in Alberta, in one of the 16 communities where you'll find a Friesen Brothers, the first of the month means 15% off every grocery purchase of $75 or more. You can check out their healthy savings, their new monthly specials every month, updated at Friesen.com. And keep in mind as well, this Saturday from 4 to 8, the select Friesen Brothers locations are offering an all-you-can-eat Easter feast. They're excited for their Easter. I couldn't help myself, Johnny. 
they are very excited for their Easter dinner. It's coming up 25 bucks. All you can eat at select Friesen brothers on Saturday from four to eight. Check out their website for details. Our friends at Eden landscaping are gearing up for another busy season. We're excited for them as they blow the dust off their shovels. They've been doing a lot of design work through the winter, plus some winter friendly projects, but spring is when they really ramp it up. They want to give you an opportunity to think beyond a front lawn. Bring back the purpose to your yard. Make it useful for something other than your lawnmower. Outdoor spaces are meant to be good for your soul. You can find out more about their urban butterfly yard approach by checking them out, getting in touch, getting the ball rolling at landscapeedmonton.ca. And all this talk about eco-friendliness today, going green, a local waste previously known as, you remember they rebranded to local environmental just a couple of months ago. It came alongside a big growth for their company, a big growth in their footprint in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but they're ramping up their efforts on recycling management, plus event-specific resources like fencing, portable toilets, water hauling, whatever you need, chances are local environmental does it. And you can keep it local by visiting them today at localenvironmental.ca. A reminder, they present Trash Talk every Friday here on the show. Your chance to get what you need off your chest. You can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure in the subject line, you note it's for Trash Talk. Linda Steele, our guest, she's got a new column out. It launched on Monday at theorca.ca. Linda, of course, not just a talented broadcaster, but a talented author as well. You've got books out. You're writing this column. Erin is watching us live on YouTube. She says, Linda, and then a big exclamation mark. She says, you're an absolute class act. When I was in high school, says Erin, I wrote to you about a career in broadcasting and to my shock and awe, in all caps, you wrote back. She says it's still such a highlight for me. Uh, how important was it for you to answer those emails, those letters through your career? We, and you know this, we would be nothing if not for the listeners and the viewers. And we were part of the community. That's what I loved about ITV originally. I mean, it was such a local station and and we lived in Edmonton and we loved it and we wanted to be a part of it and we wanted to emcee things and help raise money for things. And so when people reached out and said, hey, can I come in and watch a show or I'm thinking about going to Nate or what have you? Yeah, like, come on in, because we appreciated the loyalty of the people who were choosing to watch our station. And I always felt like Edmonton, even though it was, you know, a major city, was also had the sort of joyousness of being a small community at the same time, where people looked each other in the eye, said hi when you're waiting for an elevator. And actually, when you reached out and you said to people, hey, you know what, there's people who are hurting in this city, and we're going to see if we can do something to help bam, you could raise $100,000 in a day. You know, it was exciting. And so I always felt like these were just, I had some of the best conversations with total strangers standing in the lineup at Safeway. And somebody would say, oh, hey, you know, hi, uh, you're Linda Seal from, you know, Global. Like, yeah, how are you doing? And within minutes, we would suddenly, they'd be telling me that someone in their family is dying from cancer or some deep, you know, intimate conversation that you had with a total stranger you just met them minutes before but they felt like they knew you and that was a privilege really i you know like went from zero to a thousand miles an hour in terms of getting to know somebody really quickly without the pretense and the weirdness when you're a public figure you you have to decide at some point relatively early in your career i think and then maybe you make a conscious decision throughout how much you'll divulge or how much you'll show people how much you'll allow people to know 
on Monday, uh, you announced your new column at the orca.ca. The headline stealed for a big debut. And you get personal yeah. in there. You, you talk about the toll that talk radio is taking. You talk about the trolls. You, you quote the Ramones, which I love off the top. Yeah. And then you talk about back-to-back diagnoses, your mom and your dad uh, diagnosed with dementia. It's been a tough couple of tough few years for, for you and your family. Oh, oh, I just, I hate Alzheimer's so much. Mm. I mean, I just do. And I know there's like millions of people who can relate to this. And sadly, if you don't have an experience, odds are you will going forward with someone that you know, and God forbid, maybe even yourself. But when I first moved here uh, 11 years ago, my mom and dad were so thrilled because they were living just about an hour outside of Vancouver. And I knew right away, like something was up with mom. And it took me several weeks to get her to confess that she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, you know, she was convinced that she was going to somehow beat it, that she was going to be the only person on the planet who was going to beat Alzheimer's. And, you know, that was better than being massively depressed about it. But she couldn't, obviously. And it was a really sad road that ended up with her breaking a hip, vaulted her into long-term care. And she was essentially catatonic for the last year and a half of her life. She would just stare off at the ceiling, couldn't talk. I would have to spoon feed my mother which is a really weird and and distressing place to be. And so she passed away just a few weeks after I started at CKNW, which was super stressful too. And um, my dad had about a year and a half of sort of calm and peace. And he even ended up hooking up with a rel, you know, like a friend of the family that they'd known each other for 50 years and her husband had passed. And so he had the happiness and, and some freedom and it, it was really exciting. And then boom, my dad got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I just thought, this is like the shit end of the stick. You know, this is like not fair. And he, something happened and, and he went down the road more quickly than should have been expected. And now he's in long-term care. And I am literally the only family member here now. And it was just, it was too much. I mean, I'm his person, I'm it. And he needed me. And I thought it was selfish of me to continue living my radio dream and blowing my brains out with every, you know, synapses and what have you dedicated to the big job and thought, you know, I, I, radio was, was, it was was a big job and it was tiring. By the end of the week, I was like, exhausted and i just thought okay i'm i guess this is the time and the right thing to do and so i pulled the plug Mm. and now uh my dedication in my week my week is anchored by you know going to see dad and he doesn't really know what my name is and on occasion distressingly thinks i'm his girlfriend but uh he's always really happy to see me and yesterday i saw him and he said it's my baby and he just gets a big smile and, you know, and, and then I feel like, yeah, you know, it's worth it because it's the most important thing I think you can do is be there for someone you love when they're really vulnerable. Hmm. So, so amidst this uh, circumstance that obviously I, w- I would imagine there are huge emotions associated with it, that the temporary and, and momentary joys 
and then kind of the longer term heartbreak and, and the reality of, of what's happening. Uh, I remember my dad's mom, you know, losing her to, to dementia and, and, it, and it's that stage and you see and I remember watching my dad and his siblings, my aunts and uncles, uh, my aunt and uncles uh, handle it with such grace and uh, just obviously fueled by so much love and so much respect. But it's so heartbreaking, right? When, when did you decide that that you were going to start talking about it publicly? I mean, you, 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 you decided you were going to step back into the public eye with this new column. Well, you know what? I was talking about it on my radio show Hmm. because you know what it's like. I think true success in media is the ability to just be authentic for better, for worse. You don't always agree with me, but you know where I'm coming from. And so I often talked about it and talked to people about it. And during the pandemic, when there was lockdowns in long-term care and you couldn't even get in the door to see if your dad was okay, he lost 20 pounds in the six months or so where you couldn't go in and see him. So I talked about it because it was on my mind and and I knew that other people were also suffering and I would just open the phone lines and let people call in and we would share conversations and, and ways to connect with someone with dementia. And my dad's got a hearing problem. So they would say, we'll do a FaceTime. Well, he didn't understand and he couldn't hear and, and it was complicated. So I did talk about it quite a bit. And in the column, I wanted to explain why I left and the decision behind that uh, and then why I was coming back. Because in reality, the first couple of months were, you know, <clears throat> I almost felt euphoric because the shackles were off and I didn't have the daily pressure and I could see dad as much as I wanted to and needed to. But after summer ended and then, as you know, it rains a lot here, like a lot. Um, it just got depressing. And I thought <clears throat> I was used to being, <clears throat> excuse me, so creatively engaged every day. And to all of a sudden just have these vast periods of time where I didn't have anything going on. I just thought, man, I'm just going to go crazy. I need to, I need to find something that I can do that sort of scratches the itch and still doesn't take up too much time. So it doesn't interfere with my ability to be there for my dad. And so writing a column was like, no, okay, you know, I think this might work. So kind of tippy toeing into that. How do you envision you're going to use it? I love it because you, you open pretty candid, which I love. I mean, you're, you're talking about you, you, you reference the trolls, you reference like it, it, it's a very candid uh, column that you write. How do you envision using this? Like how, how frequently are you going to put it out at the orca.ca and what kind of stuff are you going to take on and, and what sort of tone will you take? Do you, do you think, are you figuring that out? Well, it is a bit of a work in progress and I wrote for the journal for a couple of years. And so it's been a long time since I exercised that writing muscle. So I'm trying to find my voice again and, you know, stop overthinking things and self-censoring. But the good thing is the ORCA is very much focused on politics and BC issues, but it's also just sort of a place to have a conversation and to allow people who have different points of view to discuss them without people getting down each other's throats. So the editor, McLean Kay, is just sort of giving me like this free reign to write about what I care about. And it's been a while since I've had, you know, a platform and an outlet. So I'm like just bursting with things to talk about. I have a list of, I want to do this. I want to talk about that and this and that and things that bug me and things that make me go, huh? And, you know, just sort of questions I have about things. So I've already been writing like a mad woman. And so that's not going to be the problem. Finding something to say once a week. Uh, Now it's just sort of 
you know, really just releasing the angst about, man, does this sound dumb? And I just like, no, Mm -mm. I'm just going for it. Even let me swear in my first column. (laughs) I sadly love to swear after like 30 years in the media. Right. Well, and people love to hear news anchors swear too. (laughs) Right. They didn't really love it so much when you swore on radio. No. Yeah. No, the, the, the odd ones. I I was a, I was always amazed that more didn't slip out, to be honest with you. It was more oh, it was more the live callers that had them slip out oh. than than me. But I always I always, you know, people would say, How do you how do you not swear on the air? How do you make sure you don't swear? And I always used to say, Well, it's it's the same reason I never swore on my grandparents' dinner table. You just kind right. of you flick a switch internally and, and you turn it off. And we teach our little guy Wyatt, who will be turning seven soon. I, I'm teaching him is I said, Wyatt, you gotta keep it classy. And so I say, what are, what are we going to do when we go to Papa and Grandma's house? He turns around. He says, we're going to keep it classy. I said, that's right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's a real cutie, too. Oh, you look thanks. like you're a good dad. No, Linda, that means a lot. It uh, means a lot to have you here today. Obviously, the audience is is uh, thrilled to hear from you. Just wait till the podcast drops in a couple of hours. I know that a lot of people are going to be checking out your column at theorca.ca. Uh, that's where you'll be able to read Linda Steele's weekly column. And, of course, give her a follow on Twitter at Steele Talk. We've linked to it from our account at Real Talk. RJ. Good to see your face, my friend. Have an amazing rest of your week. Really enjoyed it. You have an awesome rest of your week, too. There she is. Linda Steele, legendary broadcaster, talk host, and of course, now back with a column. Um, it's not everybody, you know, you know, this, you see this in media a lot. It's not the same thing to be able to to be a, a news anchor, like a reputable, calm, trustworthy news anchor, and then to go talk radio with no script at all, and then also to write. Because writing is its whole, you, you can be a good talker and a lousy writer for sure. She ticks all three boxes. She's amazing, like yeah. an octopus with all the all the, uh, all the the skills. But yeah, it's also great, I, I bet she's feeling it right now, to have the handcuffs off. Yeah. To be able to say what you want to say and in the way you want to say it. You know this all yeah. too well, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, octopuses, we, we've booked next Tuesday a National Geographic photographer that's got an amazing new book out. Shot from the depths of the ocean. Incredible. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's coming up next Tuesday. Uh, In just a second, we'll take you inside Mark Wahlberg's $88 million home. But right now, I want to (laughs) take I want to take you out to the mountains right now. Every Wednesday, in partnership with our friends at Tourism Jasper, we take an opportunity to remind ourselves the beauty that awaits in the majestic Jasper National Park. It's My Jasper Memories, presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. And and this week, we want to tee this up as an opportunity for you to make some memories. Spring is an amazing time to get out to Jasper, including the likelihood that you may see some fresh new arrivals. That's right. This is the time of year where you're quite likely to see not just maybe the Easter bunny, maybe the the tiny little newborn beautiful bunnies, but what about mountain goats and and all kinds of other baby animals? People are going to say to me, what is this, like grade four baby animals? Well, it depends on the species, right? Moose, bears, bunch of other, I mean, look at these deer on the shores. Is that Lac Beauvair? Looks like it might be. Of course, the park service... uh, would like us to remind you, Parks Canada, that if you do see a baby animal, give it plenty of distance because chances are protective mama's not far away. But again, an amazing opportunity to see this fresh new introduction, the first few months of life on planet Earth. Now, there are a couple things going on. If you're looking for a reason outside of 
just the nature of it all to get out to Jasper. It's not too late. You've still got time to register for the Jasper Half Marathon. It comes up April 23rd, so you got 10 days to register. I don't know if there's a more beautiful or iconic half marathon setting in Canada. Let me check this out. You can, you know, you you, you run, you you pound out that half marathon, looking at Mount Edith Cavell and that other incredible Rockies scape. There's also races for 10k, 5k if that floats your boat, and even family fun run distances. So the little ones can get in on the action. They get their race bib. They have the full experience. So special. And also coming up in Jasper, April 23rd. So you got 10 days to consider whether or not you can make it out for this and it's going to run for a couple weeks through till may 8th it's the first ever jasper mural festival called uplift it's the very first time that a mural festival is happening in jasper alberta and it's bringing street artists from across canada including fluke if you know street art fluke is a big get for this festival plus callum tikadan is going to be there and local talent keenan silence You can learn more about all of this, everything going on in Jasper right now. Plus, check out past features of My Jasper Memories here on Real Talk by checking out the website jasper.travel slash Real Talk. You'll be able to link directly to register for that Jasper Half Marathon and the Uplift Jasper Mural Festival. And while you're out there making your memories in Jasper, we'd love for you to share them with us, whether it's Twitter, Instagram. Make sure you use the hashtags MyJasper and Real Talk RJ, and chances are you will see, or could see anyway, your videos, your photos featured right here on a Wednesday edition of Real Talk on My Jasper Memories, presented by our friends at Tourism Jasper. So let's get into this house. I know people are going to say, well, aren't there more important things going on in the world? And the answer would be yes. There are 100% more important things going on in the world, but sometimes we need a bit of a break. Sometimes we want to see how the celebrities live and everybody's talking about this this now on the market this new listing in los angeles out of uh the neighborhood beverly park owned this home this estate but not by marky mark you know nobody calls him that anymore <laughs> Walters, he's, he's, he's yeah. a serious he's a serious <laughs> actor now he's actually yeah. one of my favorite actors but but yeah mark Wahlberg has put his home up for sale john for an incredible 87 and a half million dollars i mean for the people on you look at this home like, how do you live, even if you have 10 people in your family, this is just... It's pretty wild. Incredible. 12 bedrooms, <laughs> uh, six acres, a uh, 30,000 square foot home, <laughs> described as old world chateau meets Parisian train station. Um, it's designed by Richard Landry, and I, I don't know Mr. Landry's work, but I read up on him a little bit, uh, called arguably Can- uh, California's most famous architect of steroidal mega homes <laughs> that's what it looks like look at this little wine scotch cigar room he's got in the it's basement. pretty sweet like it looks i was thinking it looks a little bit like you wonder what what would mark Wahlberg's home look like and i'm not surprised to see a massive gym the guy looks unbelievable uh, <laughs> i mean he, he, he's always looked great he had a calvin klein underwear sponsorship for a while you don't get that if you sit around and crush frito-lays all day did but he say he gets up at like 2 a.m every like day he, and works out notoriously like an incredibly hard and focused worker, but they've got this, uh, you know, basically a multi-level pool, big basketball court, manicured lawn, and and he's got a five hole golf course. This is, you would love this. Look at this. This A skate park, a tennis court. People are going to go, yeah, for 87 and a half million dollars, you better have all that stuff. Yeah. You got to wonder what the pool is of buyers. 
right? Right now? And what's the realtor's commission on something like this? It's probably just a negotiated flat rate. I know there's probably realtors tuning in live. They could probably help us out with, with their guess on, on what a commission might look like here. But there it is. That's what an $88 million uh, you know, uh, pre-approved mortgage gets you. <laughs> I don't know if folks like this do you mortgage it. I think we should have done a comparison on what $88 million will get you in Vancouver. Yeah, this seems... Because <laughs> it would have been... I wonder what the highest listing in Vancouver is right now. It would have been... Uh... There's Linda could have filled us in. Yeah, probably. I mean, you'll see some in Vancouver on like like off Marine Drive or Point Grey or West Van where it's not. Yeah, it's not unusual to see a listing for 12 million, 14 million. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, like, what's the property tax on that? Or what are the utilities like on a home like 30,000 square feet? What does it cost to air condition 30,000 square feet? And and I've always suspected that if this is the type of house that you're buying or living in, you're not thinking about the cost of air conditioning. Yeah. I don't think it's the type of thing that, that really catches your attention that much. Uh, so we've got a lot coming up on the show later on this week. I want to let you know about that in just a second. But first, let me quickly remind you, you know, we're talking about cost of living and we're, we're talking about, you know, changes that people are making with regards to dropping down their family expenditures every month. The teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge are all over this right now. Sure, there are the families that are upsizing, that are getting into the Ram 1500s to pull their holiday trailers or getting into the Jeep Grand Cherokee L. That's the one with the third row seating. But there are as many families that are downsizing, that are that are looking for a smaller, more modest ride, or even an EV like the Jeep Wrangler 4xe. Have you seen this? The fully electric? Well, you can choose, by the way, toggle back and forth. Have you seen it? I'm looking at all the EVs right it's now. It's so cool, man. I drove that Jeep Wrangler 4xe, and it's got, I mean, just the electric vehicle. You, you hit it, and it's just zzz, but it looks, it's a Wrangler. It's the classic Jeep styling. I love Super it. Super cool. They can help you work within your budget. You say, here's what I want to spend on fuel every month, and here's how far I drive. Or, or, or here's basically what we're hoping to get for our trade-in. Or maybe if we're not buying you, here's what we're looking on the pre-owned side. Sales team's ready to talk to you right now at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can link to them off our website, ryanjesperson.com. Plus, our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you, you can find them on Instagram. That's where you can learn more about their offerings, including six new reasons to crave DQ. That's their signature stack burger collection. And then the spring treat collection, which includes the poolside punch twisty misty slush. Uh huh. You can find those at the Dairy Queens on Baseline Road in Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades. You make sure you let them know that you're there because you heard about them on Real Talk. Coming up on tomorrow's broadcast, we're talking a lot about COVID 19. We're talking about this sixth wave. We're talking about whether or not you should be wearing a mask. You probably might want to. And whether or not hospitals are going to be able to navigate this moving forward as we're trying to get back to surgeries and get caught back up on everything else that's delayed us over the past two months. Dr. Lenora Saxinger will join me, as will Dr. Darren Markland. That's coming up on Thursday's edition of Real Talk. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website Design, Mike Johnston. voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory. 
the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.